Hello and welcome to The Outside, the podcast, Find The Outside. It's good to have you with us again. Season five is continuing to roll on. Uh, We're very excited to have Richard Beard here with us. Richard Beard is the author of a book called Sad Little Men, Private Schools and the Ruin of England, which is awesome because it's right on the target of so much I've been bringing to the pod over the last few years. And now we get to really center it. We get to really center the conversation around privilege and how that plays out in in terms of leadership in many of the change efforts uh, we're all involved in. I'm going to read a little quote from, from the kind of like Amazon kind of description. Sad little men addresses debates about privilege head on. Clearly and unforgettably, it shows the problem with putting a succession of men from boarding schools into positions of influence, including 10 Downing Street. Is this who we want in charge, especially at a time of crisis? So, Richard, it's fantastic to have you with us. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for that introduction. Hello, Tuesday. Hello there. And I wanted to say, before we ask you our first question, one of the things that feels so exciting to me is in this dialogue around um, the isms, racism, sexism, heterosexism, all of the, we talk about privilege um, and we kind of all understand it as a concept, but for me, your book actually makes it real into the people and what their experience is. So it's so easy to just kind of say the privileged, right? The 1% and just kind of make it this blanket statement and not understand the human beings that are kind of inside that privilege. And so I'm excited today um, to talk and, and kind of make it real for people. And so thank you so much for joining us. Mm. Oh, thank you. And I think it does go back to the beginning. You go back to the schooling, to the early days of people who are later called privilege. That's where you see what formed them and the kind of behaviours that you start to recognise um, and that we all need to deal with in, you know, in, in, in our lives when we come across people like me, essentially. Hmm. I was, you know, earlier on, I was looking at the, uh, cause I was looking, I wanted to read a quote from the description of the book at the beginning of the pod. And then I started scrolling through the Amazon reviews underneath, you know, and like, mm. They're divisive. There's like some people who like, oh, this book, I can't believe it. And then other people who are, I love this book, you know. And then one of the ones I read that surprised me the most was uh, was was a was a person saying this is an excellent analysis of the analysis of the British boarding school system, which of course we need to preserve because they're the brightest and the best, you know. And I was like, this is. <laughs> I was like, I was like, how did that person take that away from this book? You know, um, so it was fascinating to me. Um, do you find that, Richard? Do you find that uh, the, the kind of response to your book is polarizing? Like, what kind of response do you get to the book? Well, I, I think it is very polarizing. I, I haven't read the Amazon reviews myself because I'm a sane human being. Yes, uh, and, I, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't inflict that on myself. Um, Good man. In terms of the, the mood changes that it can, uh, that, that it can inspire. Um, but it is very divisive. The uh, response: there are people with preconceived ideas on both ends of the spectrum. People who immediately think everything about boarding schools and a privileged background must be bad and therefore some of the more nuanced takes I have, have are, are not acceptable to them. Uh, but more um, extreme in terms of the reaction I've had are people who are absolutely defensive and protective of the position that they've gained through going to these schools, through their, mm-hmm. their, their positions of privilege. And they really don't want to hear that they weren't at the best schools which gave them the best educations, which therefore qualify them to have the best positions in society. So it... To question any of that questions their status um, yeah. and it questions the tribe as well, which they're in. And that's about mm-hmm. as, you know, as as wounding as you can get if those things really make up most of your identity. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was amazing for me reading the book um, because like you've got a whole bunch of like lingo in there, you know, that I think is very specific to like British prep schools and British boarding schools. And I said to Tuesday, I was like, Tuesday, if you need to like drop me an email when you're reading this to translate some of this stuff, like give me a shout, you know? And like even something like um, uh, KV, you, you know, which, which which is like, you know, which is like when you stand on lookout in case the teacher's coming or someone else is coming, you know? And the, But you're right, there is this language, isn't there? There's, you know, when you say like there's a tribe here, there's a real kind of... Um, impenetrable language that can surround people who've had access to this type of education and these type of schools. It's not, it's not just that you get a great education. It's that you're almost able to secretly communicate to each other. 
Yeah, well, we have to we have to question that that um, definition of what a great education actually is, because then you're starting to use the oh, language God. of these schools themselves. It's a very narrow type of education, but they'll call it great. And therefore, if you keep if you say that often enough, in the same way as I just you know come on lots of podcasts and tell everyone I'm a genius often enough, then at least it enters the conversation. <laughs> um, nice. I'm not going to do that, but now I've done it. Nice. Um, yeah. But so we it's very important not just to go along with that idea. That this is a great education. In many Thank ways, you. it's very limiting education, and in some ways, it's a kind of backward education. It it actually um, um, inhibits certain types of learning. Um, but that secret language is very interesting because KV, the thing that you mentioned is yeah. the Latin to watch out. So you have that yeah. Latin, which is... And Latin, learning Latin in the English private schools was a class marker um, oh, yeah. because it was a way of getting preparatory schools where, and this was mostly boys when this was all started, this system, from seven to 13, you had to do a Latin exam to get into your public school, which are the schools like Eton, um, to do your secondary education. And therefore, it was a way of excluding anybody who hadn't been to a private preparatory school because they wouldn't have the Latin because it wasn't on the curriculum. So it's interesting that that is still at the heart, or was still at the heart when I went to school, of this private language. But yes, it is a code, and that private language extends far beyond the actual words. It's in the way, it's in the body language, um, it's in the notion of manners. What we think of as good manners, the manners of the English gentleman, are mm. the manners of private schools. They are mm. kind of completely affected to the advantage of the people who learn how to do that from a very early age. There are different types of good manners. I mean, it's just, I mean, manners are just the surface um, expression of, a, of an inner emotion. And if your surface expression of, I don't know, being kind or being compassionate is slightly different, that can count as bad manners uh, mm. in Britain because you haven't, because those manners are defined again by the education of the private schools. So it's really this, this long-term um, amalgamation of power in certain ways of being, which can be learned if you pay enough money and segregate yourself from the rest of society. Choose. <laughs> I can just ask questions till the cows come home today, mate. I've got so well, many questions here, but I don't want to lose your voice in this. So, well, I guess I would love to have because if our if our listeners haven't read the book, Sad Little Men, right? I'd love to just hear a little bit about the book itself and why you wrote it. And one of the things that is important, I think, you know, when, I, when I've talked with other folks about this particular book, one of the things I always bring to them when you speak about language is how the schools were called public schools. And I think that that is such an important like in the book, you talk about how kind of the language ob obfuscates, how the language is intentional, how the language like, and I think there's something, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm not being very articulate today. I want you to talk about why the book, but then I also would like you to talk about how the language from these schools is shaping the narrative about leadership mm -hmm. and, uh, and obfuscating the kind of privilege that you're talking about. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I've got two questions there. I would like to say, you know, before before we go on as well, that in terms of, you know, a, a North American audience or, or any kind of English language kind of people we've got listening in, these private schools in Britain and England in particular, and that's why the subtitle is England, and it tends to be the south of England as well. Mm. Um, right. They are the model for private schools in the US and in Australia and in Canada. And therefore, yeah. any kind of mm. um, toxicity which can be identified is likely to have been passed on in the DNA of those schools. So it's not just in that sense about English private schools. The social segregation is there. Often the gender segregation is there in private schools around the English-speaking world, which were modelled on these schools originally. Mm -hmm. So it does mm -hmm. have that kind of wider application, especially as in other English-speaking countries, the leaders are taken from this same group. Right, can right. Yes. Same group. You know, perhaps not as exclusively, but I don't know the figures on that. And you guys would probably know that better than I do. Right. Um, but to go back to the origin of the of the book, the, the reason why I wanted to to write it is at the beginning of the, the lockdown, when there was this sense of, of, of crisis and wanting, I think, to have a kind of parental, someone who knows what they're doing, who's in charge, someone who who will be able to guide us through this thing, like like a, like a good parent, which kind of show mm -hmm. love to the country, but at the same time, guidance and some authority um, to reassure everybody in a time of you know, great uncertainty. What I saw on the television in Britain was boys just like me displaying behaviours yeah. that I've spent all my adult life trying to reform and trying mm. to improve on. 
Mm. Instead, I saw these boys playing power games, um, being superior, showing no great empathy for for, for the nation. And mm. I was frankly outraged by that, thinking, how can these be the people um, in charge when I recognized their, their behavior? And, and I also mm. recognized that underneath this facade, there are these small, sad little boys. That's why the book is called Sad Little Men. Mm. You arrive in these I started at boarding school in, in the same year as David Cameron and Boris Johnson, 1975. We all went. I was eight. Cameron was eight when he went, and Johnson was 11. But behaviorally, mm. that doesn't make much much difference. But there is a tiny boy, a small boy, goes to these schools. A lot of the boys are called little men. That's what they're called in the school. The teacher ah. will come and say, hello, little man. Welcome to the school, yeah. little man. And they wow. are really sad, sad because your parents aren't there. And then really the next years in school are all about hiding that sadness, hiding that mm-hmm. those emotions which express. Um, and that leads to survival behaviors which go into areas uh, like pretense, like lying, like self-reinvention, lack of authenticity. Mm. All these kind of behaviors I was recognizing in these leaders. And that did make me very, very frustrated. I think I've spent my life trying to stop doing this because I know these things aren't good. And yet mm-hmm. now, these people who've made no effort to stop any of this are going to decide how we get through this crisis as it happened not very well. But that didn't surprise right. me either. So that was the first part of the question about why I, I started addressing that. And I felt it was time. And it's a far, far enough away now for me to be able to write about to write about these things in a way which I don't think I could have done earlier on. Um, mm-hmm. uh, There's something Tim might like to talk about later, actually, is about how a lot of um, children go through this English private school system, spend some time in denial. If you're the kind of person who wants to change your behaviour, you sort of basically, you you pretend you were never there in the first place. Uh, and oh, there was gosh, a whole yeah. process of kind of coming out and saying, well, actually, I was wow. facing that. Yeah, big time. Wow. Changed, um, I changed my accent. Like I literally changed my accent. Like I, you know. Wow. Yeah, and these are extreme yeah. behaviours that this kind of traumatic experience, you know, uh, educationally leads to these kind of extreme behaviours. So that, that was the answer to the first question about why this book. And secondly, about the language. I mean, you point out that English private schools, especially the most expensive ones, are called public schools. Um, which, <laughs> yes. Which, yeah, but, which is I could not which get is that confusing. forever. Yeah. And historically, you see that the public school people themselves, the private school people will explain in a slightly patronizing way that it goes back to the 19th century when in uh, their origin, a lot of the, the schools, not the ancient ones, which go back to about the, the, the 15th century, but the, the, the kind of big Victorian surge in, in new private schools, because they, were, they, were, they offered a public education in the sense that they weren't private tutors. You could go to a school oh. and there were places reserved for people from the local guilds, for local businessmen. Um, mm. So they were public schools in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, 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 the private schools through the 20th century were very happy to have this kind of confusion, I think, between, you know, it's a public school, it's for the public good. Well, it wasn't for the public good because no. by about the end of the... Um, 19th century, you would just be paid to go there. There were always some scholarships. There are some exceptions. But through the 20th century, you go to a public school, you go there because it's a private school because you can pay. But the school is quite happy to have this connotation of public. Mm-hmm. When the language became absurd right, towards the end of the 20th century, they now like to be called independent schools. Uh-huh. Um, but this is, this is another confusion of language because they're not independent. They don't train the teachers. The teachers, if they are trained at all, because actually by law, they don't have to have trained teachers. They do take, they do tend to take trained teachers, but that training is done by the state. They also have, um, subsidies from, um, the charitable status they have. They're classed as charities. So again, they're not independent. They're getting uh-huh. tax breaks. Always uh-huh. And they're not independent because armed forces, um, uh, the Children of Armed Forces officers also get subsidised into the system, which is taxpayers' money, which does that. But they really like this idea of now being called independent schools because it also then gives the idea that the, the kids coming out of these schools are independent, even right. though that has nothing to do with why they're trying to say independent, which just means we're not state schools. So, again, they're very happy with this fluid language. You know, you can call, fluid, you call it fluid, you can call it close to kind of telling little white lies really and once you get into this area of telling lies then you look at some of the products of the schools and of course the most famous product of the private schools at the moment is Boris Johnson the Prime Minister who is famous for telling lies but you're mm. couched in that 
the beginning, it's not a big stretch mm-hmm. to become someone who lies from a system that is happy to lie about itself right. for its own advantage. Right. It's a total racket, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like when you talk about it, like like the the kind of relationship into the charities. I mean, the whole thing's it's a total racket. You, you know, I mean, it's like it's uh it's quite it's quite remarkable. And I think that's one of the great things about the book is it just like breaks it down, mm-hmm. and you're like, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, this is yeah. Just but like, Tim, I can feel the- you getting angry now, aren't you? You're kind oh, of yeah. remem- you're it- getting angry. Uh, you're you're yeah. sort of remembering it because. You've seen something different in your adult life, but a lot of people don't see anything different because there are pathways into professions and into jobs of a certain status right. where you need never examine your background or your privilege. Right. So I'm really know, pleased right. that you're getting angry. Carry on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's funny when you mentioned it earlier. Like I remember because I went from I went from Clifton College to Middlesex University in North London, right? And as far as I knew, I was the only person in the dorms that I was in who had been to private school, right? Had been to like a British public school and I was studying, I wanted to do performing arts there. And, uh, and I, and I had to do, I mean, I remember just like, I'd never tell anybody I went to, I went to public school because there was an immediate prejudice against you. Immediate. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I would hide my accent. I just, you know, and, and even here, even living in Canada here, like there's a couple of mates of mine from Aberdeen and, and like it, it, and uh, and I remember going down the going down the pub what f- a few years ago, and um and my mate is just you know he's every time there's a pub quiz anything that's Latin gets given to me right oh you've got the public school education off you go, but then there's this humour about like young boys getting buggered and 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 like and and abused in these schools and and there and there just comes a point where I there came there came a point where I got really angry, and I was like I, don't, I was like what I was like I just have no un, no understanding why that's funny. I have no understanding why the abuse of children is amusing because they come from privileged backgrounds. At what point have we become so desensitized to the impact of child impact on children just because they come from wealth and privilege, right? And 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 I think that's part of my part of my I mean I have an incredulity like you do at the systemic impact, you know, but I also feel that there's almost this like I don't know reverse something when you come from privilege where actually you're not able to defend even your 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 experience growing up in the system because you're you know what I mean so it just gets dismissed it gets dismissed somehow in the broader in the broader world which is why I think your writing and the writer of Dufferin and Chevron and and so many people now just begins to make it part of the public dialogue wait a minute let's actually understand what's going on here and build some empathy, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's an interesting point there about the collateral damage of the education was thought to be, I mean, you say it's a, it's a kind of subject for, for humour, but it, yes, it was. it's part of this sort of mythology of the place and, um, uh, and that was part of it. But in a way, that's balanced out by the privilege you're going to get later in the positions which you'll be able right, to, right, to hold. Right, right, right. But I mean, this is in terms of you know system change. There is enlightenment in stages. So I think that was the first thing to be isolated as actually sexual abuse in a boarding school is still sexual abuse. Um, but until 1989, those did, abuses didn't have to be reported. And there's a there's a book That's by right. um, Alex Renton called Stiff Upper Lip, which actually documents how teachers who had been uh, who were paedophiles who'd been caught in acts of sexual abuse with boys would be sent to another prep school with a reference because they just want to get rid of them so they'd send them to another school and they could just go around a number of different schools repeating the same the same abuses so in terms of that enlightenment stage that was isolated first but then that became a bit of um you know a limitation on the way to talk about these schools because because if people wanted to to and especially the people who experienced the schools want to say i don't think this was great in lots of different ways immediately everyone's thoughts went to well you must have been sexually abused um, right. And then you can add a bit of the physical abuse because of the the, the corporal punishment, the caning, and the, the, the kind of slippering, and the, um, uh, which went which went on these schools. But I think now the net we're reaching the next stage where we just say, well, no, actually, the whole system can be seen as abusive um, mm-hmm. because you're taking kids away from their parents to go into boarding schools. It's the same as taking right. kids uh, into care, and you have a lot of the same psychological outcomes. That's right. Um, and I found it quite important to say when I've when I've been doing a book tour with the book and I go to festivals to say, you know, I, I was not physically abused, you know, mm. in, in these schools. 
Um, you know, I was whacked with a cane, as everybody else was, but I, I was did very well in the schools. I was in the sports teams. I was in the top classes. I was the kind of person who would be an advert for, the, for this kind of school, come out aged 17, feeling very confident on the way to Cambridge. I'm exactly what the output of the school should be. And yet I can now say 40 years later, no, look at this and look at this and look at this. This is this all created psychological damage, which comes out later in your relations with adults. And in particular, if you get into a position of leadership, which is what's expected of you and which the English systems of power enable, you pass mm. on that damage to other people because you're mm-hmm. at the top feeding that down to others. Tuesday, you said this thing, you said this thing the other day to me. You're like, oh, I'm really glad you're on our side. Yeah, <laughs> remember? Oh, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> This was a, a bit of a, maybe I wanted to ask you about the nuances. You said some folks weren't, weren't willing to hear kind of some of the nuances, right? Like, so there, there could be some benefits of this education um, as well as the, the hardships, right? And so I, and, and that was, I wrote it down. And I thought, well, this is for me, this is Tim uh, in a lot of ways. So when Tim and I walk into groups that are, are hot, right? Maybe there's a lot of conflict, especially if there is racial conflict. So here in North America, like that's like, a hot, it's a hot issue, right? You walk into rooms, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, and I feel like I can walk in with Tim because nothing rattles him, nothing rattles him. And, uh, and people respond to him. He can respond in a crisis. He can be cool. He can be both. Um, he can name things. Well, he can name things courageously. It's like this really amazing combination that I never know, except that I know him now for 17 years. I never know what's happening under his surface. He could be like a duck paddling and his feet could be going, he could be going crazy inside and you would never see it on a surface. And it, it's calm. It makes people feel comfortable. Right. And so there's some, um, there's some gift to it, but frankly, like I think he's with the good guys. If he were with the bad guys, he could be just that bad doing really terrible shit. Right. And so I said to him the other day, because he did something, you know, just incredibly charming that disarmed something. And I was like, I am so glad you're on our side, because if you weren't, you could really make a mess here. And so um, that was kind of the idea. And I'd love to hear you respond to it, because I see it. I see the benefits of his education all the time in our work. Well, I'll, I'll ask Tim, I mean, what do you think about that? Are you feeling calm? Are you feeling good about yourself when you're doing this? Are you, do, do you recognize that description of yourself? Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and, and I mean, you know, if you, if you get, I mean, the literature talks about strategic survival personalities, right? You know, you develop these personalities that enable you to survive situations that are uh, violent, abusive, unsafe, you develop hypervigilance, you don't have parents, there's no, it's not like even if you're going to a school where you're being bullied, you don't get to go home right? It's 24 seven, right? And so you develop these personalities. And so one of mine was that was that kind of charisma and that performative ability to like, look at a situation and see the dynamics and the relationships and intervene to diffuse them, you know what I mean? Or to move them on. I mean, like, those are skills I developed. And they were skills I developed before I even went to school, because, you know, I was raised in a family that was multi-generational boarding schools, right? Like, like you know, I, I, I was born into a boarding school. Like, all the behaviors that were tried to be drilled into me at school had already been drilled into me at home from zero, you know? So, yeah, I absolutely recognize it. And, and there's a piece of me that can really enjoy that side of myself, too you know but the danger is um the danger for me is uh is when i get caught up in that the the result of like um too much of that kind of performative behavior for me is very 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 intense anxiety right to like like show stopping anxiety you know and so and so what i have to be really careful about is um not becoming that but using that as a tool, <laughs> you, you know? And, and I think that's been part of the real journey for me over the last, I don't know, choose six, seven years of just being like mm-hmm. in a very, very deep personal journey of like understanding my own past, understanding my ancestors, understanding my relationships to my parents and my grandparents and the context of my schooling. It's, you know, to get to the point where, oh, that's something I can, I can, uh, I, I can, I can use to my advantage, but it's not the definition of who I am. And I think that's been a, and that's been hard work, you know, I'm not going to like, that's been 
hard, dark work that has involved very difficult conversations with people who were both alive and dead, let alone the conversations I've had with myself and my business partner, you know? Yeah, but I, I love the, the, the honesty of that answer because the qualities that Tuesday's, Tuesday was describing are qualities which are very useful in a work situation, in a professional situation. Um, and then, Tim, you call them slightly kind of performative. But one of the things we're used to doing is dealing with a crisis because, you know, when you're abandoned by your parents, essentially what happened, and then uh, dumped among a load of feral boys and, and teachers who, who don't love you, um, then you are all about performing. You're performing survival. Mm. You, you need to be able to do that thing of being on the being quite sort of reserved on the surface. Um, mm. But the problem with it is when you stop doing that. You know, when work stops, how do you how do you get rid of that personality? And and for for a lot of people, you just don't. And therefore, that's why exactly. you see quite a lot. Work of never stops. Have. Yeah, you become <laughs> yeah. a workaholic. I mean, work work being a workaholic um, with someone from this kind of privileged background again we probably need to look at that word at some point as well um hmm. it's just mm-hmm. a way of not having to turn around and face yourself and do the work which tim was describing because it doesn't mm-hmm. sound like a kind of healthy start to young adulthood to go to university and basically hide what change everything you've been for the previous eight years change your accent pretend you've got a different past and when you've got your you're getting into really strange yeah performative territory which is going to be something that you're going to have to correct at some stage you know which was the real you is it the 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 survival personality from the school or is it this new personality that's trying to find itself with fewer constraints once you get out of those schools um Mm -hmm. so i do think it's important to yeah recognize what's useful in, in a work environment um, with those qualities, but they are performed. They do need to be kind of turned off. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's right. not that useful in personal relationships, you know, either. No. And therefore, just finding the balance between them. But I do like the way Tuesday you bring up that nuance. It's, it's not to say that if you come out of these schools, you're, you're just going to be a complete wreck. You can be incredibly functional, but it's it's a bit like a functional addict. You know, you can mm-hmm. function, you can function yeah. very well, but the damage is there and will need to be addressed. Otherwise, you don't know what damage you're passing on to others. And again, you see this in, in politics and why it's so dangerous. Yeah, and, and because those relationships are performative, it's all about pushing out. It's not about receiving, like the behaviors. It's all about pushing something out in front of you to defend you on some level from whatever is going on. And so and so you become robbed of the capacity to listen, right? You, you know, you become robbed of the mm. capacity to actually mm. empathize because your effort is going constantly into protecting yourself, which is the training. I love it. What did you call it? A, an environment full of feral boys. Like I really relate to that. You know, that's what it was like. We had like 80 boys living in a house together with one housemaster who hardly ever turned up, you know, a Scottish matron who just stayed in her room, you, you know, and then, uh, and, and then, uh, 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 what was it called? Like a housemaster, but like there was a house warden or something. And, uh, uh, he got he got, he later got done for paedophilia. He got done for like filming kids and stuff like that. The guy who was I was never involved with him, but like, and so it's just like it's, it was a totally feral situation. So you all of your training is to protect yourself from what's going on, rather than to listen to and empathize. And then I, I feel like that plays out. That plays out when we talk about the leadership. It's like, well, this is why we end up with systems and services and structures and programs and pieces of infrastructure that aren't built around people's needs because there's been no, there's no capacity, I think, often among those who default into these positions of power to listen effectively, right, and therefore design systems and services that meet people's needs. And so I think that's a piece of it. And, 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 and I also think what's going on in the UK with the boarding school system or across the English speaking world, as you say, Richard, in the boarding school system is like, I think it's a fairly extreme and therefore more increasingly visible example of what happens within contexts of privilege all over the place, you know? And so I'm just, I feel also really intrigued about how what is going on in the UK may actually be informative of how we work with leaders who default into positions of power in all kinds of situations all over the world. I think it's I think that there is that stratified uh, pattern in almost every society, just in the English one, it's really obvious. And therefore we can look at that and be like, oh, that's fascinating. I wonder how that applies in other places that we're working as well. Anyway, I kind of rambled on a bit there. What do you two think about that? Tuesday, give us a, come back to us. 
Yeah, no, I'm totally here. I think that for me, um, there's I, there's just a couple of threads in there, Tim. One is like I, I want to know more about the inability to listen or perhaps the not skill built uh. of listening, the inability to have empathy. Like you use that word and Richard, you use that word quite often in the book. And I guess for me, what feels interesting, I, th- I think it's important for us to see how this is playing out many different places. And I want to say there feels to be a general lack of empathy in everything we're talking about, right? So there's a, there's a you're talking about the empathies kind of maybe um, pushed out or squeezed out of the boys in the system. And, um, and I think there's very little empathy for the boys in the system. And so part of me just wonders about how do we begin to build empathy? Right. Because I don't know that any of these systems are going to change if we can't build some level of listening and empathy. So that's what I was kind of thinking about as you as you um, finished up, Tim. Richard, what do you got? I mean, I, I think it's 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 any any school. I mean, Tim was saying that yeah, board, English boarding schools are an extreme example. But you see it, I think, in in private schools more generally um, or any any type of educational um, institution which is supposed to be. Um, breeding leaders so any kind of elite school and therefore you get into India which again influenced by English private schools you famously in France all the leaders went to the ENA um, which was a, a, a university kind of part of the, the Ecole Nationale Administrative or Administration something like that and then all the leaders came through there I mean a bit like Oxford University mm. after the schools in, in England and Macron has, has closed it down he just said we, we can't we can't have this anymore because you mm. can't segregate people who are going to be leaders. Because when it comes to empathy, if you're segregated um, as an essential part of your leadership training, how does that help you empathize with people who are not segregated behind your high walls? And I think right. that's that's one aspect of it. There's a social segregation in all private schools. Um, if you can be taken away from the rest of the community because you have the money to pay to do that. Um and that is going to lessen, I think, your ability to empathise with people um, who are who are unable to pay to leave their own community, which is essentially what you're doing. Um, I think in 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 a boarding school, there's an there's an added aspect, which is you'll be taught from a very early age not to feel for yourself. You, you're mm. not feeling sorry for yourself is one of the main principles that you learn. You shouldn't cry. Um, you shouldn't feel mm. sorry for the fact left your family so once you stop feeling for yourself it's very easy to stop feeling for other people um right. it, you just lose that kind of synapse connection you think well if, I, if i'm not sitting feeling sorry for myself why should i feel sorry for anybody else in any other situation and, mm-hmm. and you get into that situation of thinking well you know i got over this you get over your thing whatever it is and that's really the opposite right. of empathy right i mean right. It's, it's kind of completely not empathetic but I think what Tim said about listening and being able to listen, if you're projecting this defensive self, you can't let anything pass that barrier. It's like the warp shield in in Star Trek. You know, it's on full yeah. the whole time and therefore nothing yeah. can come in. Um, yeah. But I do think that the, the problem of segregation, of the separation, you know, again, it's extreme in English boys' boarding schools. So there are only four left now, but they're still providing a completely disproportionate number of people to leadership positions in the UK. Mm. Um those boys who go to that school who go on to become prime ministers, judges, heads of the civil service, um, they they have grown up separated from um, people of different class, people with less money, from women, from uh, racial diversity. Um, so there are all sorts of areas where really their empathy has to be, you know, um, something again, which they can perform and they might perform it quite well, but there's not a mm. genuine empathy. I think getting into your area that is going to inhibit any genuine feeling for change. Any you, you can understand intellectually the, the the requirements, the need for change, but without actually investing fully in that change. And therefore, as long as you tick the right boxes, you kind of it stops real change happening. I think. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I, yeah. So that makes me want to ask you. So, what is this? This rise of multiculturalism, right? This rise of diversity and inclusion of equity. Like, how? I mean, if. If, if we're, and I, I, I think you just did a, I, I had a, one of your, well, I won't read it back to your book, but I just, um, talking about the segregated community, um, and I'm, and, and this anticipation that you should lead, right? I've been groomed to lead. I've been taught to lead. I'm wondering how that feeling of entitlement, this is where I should be, right? And I've had this experience of segregation. How is that meeting 
right? This multicultural push, this push toward diversity and inclusion. What is happening? If, I mean, both of you can talk to me about it, but Richard, I'm curious what you're seeing about this, because this feels like a kind of complete clash um, yeah, of I think, worlds. Yeah, I, yeah, I think there's a realization that the, there has to be a realization that the sense of entitlement is is genuine. That's not perf- kind of performative. It's a genuine sense of entitlement. So when these two things meet, I say from from my background, the white privileged private schoolboy genuinely thinks that they are the better person to lead because mm-hmm. they've been told yeah. from a very early age this is the education you get if you're going to be a leader. And mm-hmm. at a very simple level as well, we'll go back to where we started. You're being told by your parents who paid all the money and by the teachers this is the best education money can buy so anyone from a different background has by implication not had the best education they've had a less good education it's just a straight logical implication so therefore if they're less well educated they're going to be less well entitled to lead so it's a genuine feeling of entitlement and i think that's Mm -hmm. one of the things which hasn't been understood when the two things come together this you know these guys aren't pretending they genuinely think they are better than everyone else, because that's what they've been mm-hmm. led to from a very early age. Um, and I think yeah. that's something to contend with. I, I'm not always sure how you do contend with that, but it is something to, to contend with. Um, and I think the only the only way to change it is is to try and stop that separation being being as extreme as it is. But I, it, I don't think that the signs are all that encouraging because mm. people like to protect their children. They like to protect these pathways into yeah. privileged positions. That's the vested interest which is there. Richard, um, years ago when I first started this work, I, I do a lot of spoke. I used to do a lot of spoken word and poetry and stuff like that. There was one image I had at some point where, like, uh, it was like walls become stepping stones, you know. But it was this idea that I was kind of tearing down those walls, and actually, it was the tearing down of them that created the stepping stones, where I was able to figure things out. And and I think part of part of what I'm trying trying to figure out as I go as I try and bring what I'm learning from my personal life into my professional world is, and I want to come to your question around how you deal with the entitlement. But like in your experience, like how have you begun to dismantle those walls that you just built as a kid? You know, what has been like some of the personal practices mm-hmm. and steps that you have taken to just dismantle that and and become in you know in, in the words we used earlier less performative and more genuine you know more able to listen as opposed to just defend like what are some of the steps you've taken um because you've obviously built a very good and i mean it's it's brilliant for me to listen to you because i can hear the sophistication of the analysis you've built you know mm-hmm. but it'd be great to hear a little bit of like the personal journey you've taken uh Right, I'll try and get onto that in a bit, but I was just kind of thinking while you were, were saying that, Tim, just about what Tuesday said, and I think in terms of that entitlement, the reason that can stay in place so strongly is because individuals don't recognise the difference between um, advantages which are institutional and advantages which are personal because of their personal qualities. Right. So mm-hmm. so they will be, you can get preferment, for example, because of these institutional systems and pathways, and then just say, well, that's because I'm great. You know, I get yeah. a bonus as a banker because I am great, not because every step of the way <laughs> these doors have been open to me. And I just happen to be the person sitting in the seat this year when the million pound bonuses. Come in. Yeah, right. I mean, so that's one thing you can start to do personally just by, you know, kind of looking around you and being open. But you have to get into that listening state. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, though, because sometimes it's not just like. I've been told I've been great. Like often it's like, and my grandfather was great and my great grandfather was great. And there's these kind of like foot, like you get, you're getting that messages as you're growing up, but it's almost like, I don't know what it was like for you, but there was just like a familial expectation, you know, before I even got to school that like we were going to succeed and we were going to lead. That was just the way it was going to be born to it. You know? Yeah. I mean, I have, I have a slightly different background, which I think again, it's quite a good way of going into answering the question you asked before about my personal pathway Great. is that um, in, in my family. So my dad is a builder. He was in a, in a um, building company, family building company. And uh, after the second world war in Britain, there's a big housing boom. A lot of small builders became big builders, made a lot of money. There's a lot of money to make. So suddenly they had money. Um, and because he was a bright guy, he thought, well, how'd you get on in British society? Obvious. You just chuck your kids into the private school. It's like human laundering. You say, right, we're, we're, they're going to come out the other end just belonging to a new class. 
Um, yeah. And it was a way of just trying to to infiltrate the leadership group. Um, but it did mean that when I went home to our, our you know, our semi-detached house in Swindon, which is a kind of industrial town in, in the south of England, I wasn't going home to the same kind of house, mm. and the same kind of grounds and the same kind of tennis court as most of the other people were going home to. So I always had that sort of slight sense of not being entirely part of it and in fact we were derided in the school we weren't the, the only ones because we're not the only people who have this idea but it was a quite a small minority of people who were the called the nouveaux which was short for the nouveau riche and and really well it's a bit like anyone who happened to be you know jewish for example the people who were really uh, integrated in the tribe and of the tribe would want if they found a difference in you they'd want to remind you of it mm. that you weren't mm. really fully qualified um, so there was always that sense of slightly being on the outside. Um, and then when I, because these thoughts were developing when I was already at the school, that when I left, I, I, and until, and to this day, I haven't been in touch with anyone from the school. I don't have a friendship group, mm. well, a connection, a connections group, which is how, again, a lot of people sustain the privilege by using the contacts that they have. Um, and because I didn't do that, I was free to mix, you know, with a much wider group of people and try and kind of single-handedly correct that separation that we'd had at school and that often involved me being entirely <laughs> humiliated by by my my conditioning had led me to expect yes that I would be you know kind of smarter mm. better I'd, I'd be better at problems uh, I'd be the person who would read the map not the person who would follow the instructions <laughs> of the group and, and just be humiliated time and time again by reason other people could do things better than me mm. um and it, Actually, that has that has an effect, and you you learn what you are good at. Um, yeah. Not my breathing, um, and uh, <laughs> and therefore you find your place. You find your place, which is you know where where you kind of um, belong and where you can try and sort of develop skills which are suited to you, rather than thinking, well, I'm I'm some kind of superhuman mm. um, because I, I had this particular background. So that personal journey is ongoing as well. But apart, yeah. I mean, there are all sorts of things available to in modern life, which weren't available. I mean, for example, Tim, to your ancestors, I mean, things like therapy, for example, yeah. you actually go and talk about these things, talk about your, your youth. That is now open as a decision that you can make, you know, whereas previous generations would have been told, no, you just keep it buttoned up. And keeping everything mm -hmm. buttoned up is part of the problem because it means you're not really thinking about it, you're not really engaging with your own self. Therefore, how can you engage with the world? Um, and I think there are more options open now to people who want to correct um, some some of some of the damage that's been done. And I think that's a good thing. But I also think if you start taking the pathways of, of privilege, they're they're addictive. It's mm. very hard to stop doing that once you get it once you've you know if you decide well I'll, I'll just go and do a little bit of a law degree and then you know uh, I'll, I'll earn some money and then I'll set up a jazz club you know those people never set up the jazz club <laughs> um they go on they'd be a QC they'd be the judge in the house of lords and then mm. I don't know whether they are on their bed and they think god I wish I'd set up a jazz club but I suspect they do do that and I expect that there's a great deal of of kind of hidden unhappiness like a sort of river beneath British society and mm. perhaps all in English speaking societies. Mm. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I just, if I think about like my dad, you know, I mean, like there's no doubt that my dad had to just had to go through a lot of change because of what took place in our family. Like, it, but there just came a point where he's just like, yeah, I'm done. I'm done changing now. You know, <laughs> like, you know, he just like, I, 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 I I'm putting an end to this emotional journey. You know what I mean? It's done. Right. I'm just going to see this life out now as I am. Thanks very much. You know, and, uh, and just like that ability to do that, that ability just to put like a full stop on uh, your kind of interior, interior journey. It just, it, it's remarkable. But, but how remarkable is it when, when aged eight, you, you, you say, I really miss my mum and dad, kind of the most basic primeval urge. And yet you're told by the teachers, you've had three days of that now. You're done. Mm. It's finished. Yeah. That emotional That's journey right. is finished. Mm. You know, he, he would have known exactly how to do that. It wouldn't have been a big stretch. Oh, gosh, yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, and he went away at seven. Yeah. Um, he was in uh, South Africa and went away to a school up and was sent away to a school up in the hills. No, Salon, sorry, up at the first place. So um, one of my questions then is around... Um, I think many of the people who listen to the pod 
and this is a question I have too, um, is, is like, well, how do we, how do we engage with these leaders effectively? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and it's like many of the people in this, who listen to the pod aren't necessarily the top leader. Though they may be higher up or they may be in the middle or they may be within a community seeking to implement change. And they're going to be encountering leaders, encountering leaders like the ones we're describing, who have just defaulted into positions of power, right? And, and so then it's like, well, how, how, do, you, how do you work with that? What, 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 are there effective ways to engage these leaders? Um, you know, it's, it's almost like we're identifying the problem and saying the individual leaders have to do the personal work, you know? And I can't help hoping there's more to it than that. <laughs> that, there's, that there's some way we can actually begin to like help these leaders move along, uh, navigate around them. Like, do you have any thoughts on that, Richard? Like even like organizationally or societally or systemically, like how do we actually engage these leaders so things get less stuck? Well, I think that's a good question. I think that also... Uh, that joins together with Tuesday's question about when you have this kind of rising tide of um, diversity, multiculturalism meeting this really quite kind of solid, um, even sclerotic wall of, of, of kind of privilege, which is there. Um, and I think the first thing it says, you, you can't just if you you can't just attack it because that's what no. we mm. are. We're great at defending ourselves. You know, you, you attack it, we're good mm-hmm. at arguing, we're good at debating, we're incredibly good at being thick-skinned, being emotionally non-reactive. So don't, you know, you can't attack it. That's not going to work, mm. all right? And people have been trying to attack wow. it for, 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 for hundreds yeah. of years. That's not going to work. To no avail. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my so, gosh. Yeah, we're we're, wow, we're, we're like... training that. Yeah, so, so, so don't do that. Um, and I think you've got to look at, <laughs> there, have been, there have been times when people with this background have learned they tend to be through crisis again through extremes and mm. this is like the mm-hmm. first part of this i don't want you to think i'm advocating that there should be war to teach these people but famously in britain um you had two wars close together so 1914 to 18 1939 to 1945 you had two generations of public school boys who in the armed forces had to mix with the other ranks and they had to mm. fight mm. the other ranks and they recognized that these were their people that were their equals often were, were were more admirable than they were themselves they understood the concept of one nation that everyone was in this together and then after the second world war that's one of the reasons why you do get this post-war kind of social democratic settlement because the leaders have been humbled by that experience by that collision with mm. reality they've been forced to unsegregate themselves um, and mm-hmm. to see that there are different realities which also need to be taken into account as leaders. The same people stay as leaders. I mean, Churchill was voted back in in, in 50 after the socialist government from, from 1945. But the same people are leaders, but they do, there has to be a change. And they recognize there has to be a change because they have had that direct experience. And if, when we're talking earlier about the best education, if the education in private schools is worth anything, then when you encounter this truth, this reality of other people's lives, you have to recognize it and then act on it. Otherwise, that education is utterly useless. So we have to have some mm. faith that actually all that Latin, all that English literature, you know, all the science, all the critical thinking does actually amount to something, which is there mm-hmm. is a possibility to learn. And then I think you get into kind of Mandela territory. So Nelson Mandela was dealing with, again, South Africa, the private school system is there, and that's based on the English private school system, and a lot of the apartheid leaders have been through these South African private schools. Um, and he just said, no, come and see our world. Just be part of our world and see what is there. Um, and the good news in terms of leaders, leadership is you can do that to individuals who have a lot of power. And if you can bring them out mm-hmm. of their you know, conditioned segregation their conditioned separateness from everyone else and just say just come and look have and, and everyone has faith in their own tribe if you like and the tolerance of their own tribe to take in these leaders and just say just look and see mm. see what you find then have faith mm. education in these private schools did have some sort of kernel of goodness about it then i think that's the way to do it but i think the it's you know the, atta- the attacking as we said that, that's been tried that's not going to work yeah. And again, it, I, sorry, Tuesday. Carry on. 
Oh, no, please. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and that, that was what was amazing about Nelson Mandela, that he, in that spirit of total forgiveness that he had, he had that confidence just to say, just come, you know, look. And we're not going to have, we're not going to think about revenge. We're not going to think about the hundreds of years of injustice. We're just going to say, come, look now. And now what do you think? Mm. It was an amazing example you know, at the time, and it remains an amazing example, I think. Yeah, I just feel really blown away um, by your saying don't attack, because I feel like it's been such the the only method we've been using for so many years, right? Even still, I mean, I can still feel it on the left here. It's like a, a revolution. Take that, you know, like, take that away. Give up your privilege. Da, da, da. You know, it's like it's a quite an attacking um, orientation. Um, and so just to hear you say don't attack, because this is what we know how to defend against, right? I mean, this is this this is Trump here, right? Like he was completely like Teflon. No attack worked at all. Attacking with, you know, knowledge or information or like none of that worked. And so this idea of becoming more skillful at relationship relating, uh, standing kind of sovereign in who you are and inviting in, right? Rather than attacking, right? That feels really important. And I, and so I, I love that. I, I feel like I'm going to use that, Tim. I feel like we're going to use that Definitely. in our work. Definitely. And I also think um, what you just said for me illuminates part of why, um, why our work together, Tim, why it's effective, right? Because mm. it's like you didn't you know, I don't think in any part of our relationship, I was like, Tim, you got to get rid of your privilege. Let's just like, you know, like <laughs> I didn't attack. Right. What I said oh. is like, uh, come on over, let's be friends. Um, and you said the same thing. You said, yes. And let me show you what's happening for me. And you have to have empathy for that. And I'd be like, OK, but, you know, like I have empathy, but you also had enough to eat. But it, we kind of worked it back and forth. Yeah. Right. In relationship. Yeah. Um, and I know that that's, that's hard to scale, but I don't think we, it's attacking hasn't been scalable either. Right. So. And when you're working with leaders, the great thing is you don't need to necessarily on a great scale. You need to identify the people with the power because of the power is so concentrated. If you can get to those, mm. those leaders and the other thing is just identifying the, the, the neediness of privilege. And a lot of the neediness of privilege is this sense of not being loved as young people because that love has been replaced by often by competition because you want the approval of teachers. You haven't got your parents there to love you. So the most important thing in your life, and this can happen outside boarding schools as well, the most important thing in your life is the approval of coming top in the class that the teachers approve of you. So you get into that cycle of I must always be the best, I must always be the leader, and you sort of lose sight of what. Mm -hmm. what you know, what will provide the, the greatest good for the greatest number. And you just think, well, what do, I just need to be top of the class for the rest of my life, which must be exhausting for the people involved. And, you know, they're needy mm -hmm. there. I think they, they really just want to be to be loved like everybody. They want to stop being top of the class and realize you can't be a leader without being first in every single subject every single week. Um, and this then will start to open up those softer spaces where you know interesting things can happen in terms of leadership, and you can get the full potential out of out of any particular group. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, definitely part of our theory of change or practice or whatever. I mean, I put it down here is like we've never said it this way, choose, but like they're pockets of desegregated action. Like we're bringing together very, very diverse people who mm -hmm. hold very, very different mm -hmm. levels of power, have very, very different lifelong experience to tackle something like a child welfare system, you know, or to tackle, you know, and like, and it's very deliberately designed to do that because we're trying to create the conditions for these different perspectives and peoples and backgrounds to collide because in our experience, that's where something mm -hmm. interesting gets discovered. That's where we actually end up finding something which gives us a viable alternative that more and more people are bought into, which is, we, you know, we spend a significant amount of our lives trying to, on the one hand, make the current systems a bit more bearable and accessible, but also on the other hand, to try and help people construct and build viable alternatives that we can migrate people to. And, um, and it, just, it just doesn't happen it doesn't happen unless you have this kind of like collision of worldviews, very similar to the one I had when I first went to Middlesex University and was like, oh, fuck, it's really different out here. <laughs> it's not the same, you know. But I think if I'd gone to Durham University, I would have been like, oh, it's exactly the same as my school. You know what I mean? And you just would like truck on through. So I do think it's that, it's that it is, it's that collision of worldviews. It's that collision of ideas that somehow loosens the bolt. 
years ago, we met with one of the leaders of the uh, World Health Organization before they all got, before the, it was kind of before the pandemic. And that's how he described the need at the World Health Organization was this need to like just loosen all the bolts. It's become so rigid, you know, and it just makes me think that a lot of the way you're describing these people or the lot of way we've been describing these people is also true for a lot of the like long-standing systems we find ourselves working in whether it's the world health organization or the world wild like they've just been around for hundreds of years what did you call it? you called it sclerotic or something that kind of like they've just become like so fixed and entrenched they can't move anymore you know they can't be responsive no, I did. I did say sclerotic. I think sclerotic means dead. Um, and I said it meant dead in its, in its kind of affect. But uh, unfortunately, it is still alive. Um, yeah. That, those walls are still alive. But yes, they, they're kind of um, uh, dead, but still attached to the body politic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Richard, do you do you think we're do you think we're in the kind of uh, like super high level now as we get towards the end of the pod? You know, I, I kind of want to ask you what gives you hope for the future as you look at this. You know, and and uh, you know, do you, do you think we're in a period where we're seeing kind of like the death throes of a of a leadership style, or do you think we're really at the point of just beginning to identify the problem? Like, is that if you were to give some kind of analysis on where we might be? Um, in terms of transitioning the dominant style of leadership that clearly isn't a good fit. Where do you think we're at in this? Well, I mean, I'd like to be more optimistic. I, I think the, the problem, problem is there's a kind of negative spiral that goes on in countries where these the, the, a very small elite provides the, the the leadership the political leadership in particular but is backed up by leadership in these other domains as well in the in the judiciary and in, in the army um uh in the, in the civil service and around different areas of the the country in business um and if you have a small elite providing that leadership they 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 have a vested interest in maintaining the pathways that took them to where they are um, and if they're also making decisions about state education, which is what happens in a, in a you know, clearly unjust and inequitable way, they are not going to favour um, other tribes than their own. And in, in England, there's very clear correlation between underfinancing state education and the number of people who want to put their kids into pri private education. So the two things, they get a kind of double whammy here. They, they get a double strike. You, you, you underfund state education, which allows private schools to flourish because parents get nervous. And in a way, you can't blame them. I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of nervous about their kids getting a basic education at, at some stage because of the sheer underfunding of the state system. So I don't really see how you change that, especially in a, in a country like England, where all the kind of rituals and traditions, which you know the, re the rest of the world finds so kind of uh, quaint like the opening of parliament and they are all they are all designed to make the elite stay and feel comfortable and therefore people who are outside the elite don't feel comfortable with it and it deters other people from trying to get into these roles i mean the wigs that judges wear the um the terms of address in the house of commons the, the, these are yeah. all things that you can learn at private school you can learn at oxford university but if you don't have them it's very intimidating and it, it means a lot of people don't put themselves forward so to try and be optimistic, I think we need to find ways that a much wider range of people put themselves forward for leadership positions, feel qualified to do so. Um, and in a way, the narrower the elite gets, the more likely that is to happen because you know people like to express themselves. They like to have their views known. And, and the more different ways in which people do organize themselves, these are going to create new opportunities for, for leaders to emerge with true leadership qualities. Um, so in a way, I think the, the way that the elite has been narrowing, I mean, in this country, for example, in the, the, the private schools have just broken the £50,000 barrier for the first time. So that's for one kid, one place for one year, £50,000 after tax. That's um, what, 70 grand choose? 70,000 US, something like that? Yeah, no. so imagine you've got three kids. Um, uh, you know, and this, of course, a school like Eaton has over a 1,000 children in it. They're all, they're all paying that much money, but they all, this is a tiny proportion of society. So as it narrows, um, the, the, the proportional cost to, to wages used to be a lot lower. 
um, through the kind of 70s, 80s. And it, it was more affordable for kind of country solicitors or provincial builders, in fact, like my, my, like my own dad. Now that's gone out. It's really hedge fund managers, oligarchs, um, corporate lawyers. It's becoming very narrow. And just the very protectionism of the elite may be what breaks it in the end is because there'll be this overflow of reaction against it, which will produce different systems to produce different types of leaders. And then in, 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 the, in a great moment for history, these different leaders will actually be, be, be much better qualified for leadership and therefore mm. will be the one, ones who take over and hopefully will be elected to take over because it's so obvious they're better at leadership. Um, and that, that will be a great moment. I love, I love what you're saying. And I know Tim just went big. Uh, I want to bring us back to kind of close. I'd love to bring us back to you, Richard. And um, you said that you've spent kind of your whole life since leaving these schools, kind of reforming and learning, learning to be different. And so I have a question around what's next for you. Mm. Like, what is it that, what is it that you'll be doing next, either even in your own personal reformation or kind of professionally? But I'm curious, like after you've done this, you've written Sad Little Men, it's kind of catalyzed all all this, at least in our world, it's catalyzed a lot of thinking and uh, conversation. And so I'm really curious what's next for you. Well, I think that within one of the things this book has has really revealed to me is that within my tribal group, these privileged white private school, English speaking people, uh, we don't realize, there's the phrase, no, check your privilege. We don't know how to check our privilege. We don't even know how to look at it. We don't know how to um, calculate it. We, we don't know how to get the sheer scope of it and the scale of it. And it's not just us, it's historically. This is something Tim keeps going back to, his ancestors, his ancestors before them. Um, uh, and, I, and I think what I feel I can usefully do, having, having done the sad, sad Little Men, which the responses I had have been, you know, have been incredibly informative for me in terms of people saying, well, I hadn't thought about it like this. Or a lot of people say, well, I did think about it like this, but I don't know how to express the fact that, you know, mm. It, this this hasn't worked for me. And it's actually made my own personal development very difficult, and people feeling yeah. very feeling sort of almost guilty about positions they're in, or guilty about not taking those positions as well. It, it's yeah. really put the individuals in a very difficult situation. But I think this idea of trying to, I so so I'm so in in my next book, what I really want to do is to is to try and explore the sheer historical scope of that of of, of that privilege, and it, I do think it's ingrained in us in ways which we've only we've hardly begun to understand and and the kind of unconscious bias we have yeah so the project is to make the unconscious bias conscious that's what i'm going to try Mm. very exciting i just feel i mean I, i feel enormously grateful for um those of you who are out there just putting words around this into the public domain you know it uh it a form it uh informs my kind of my own personal journey as a survivor of boarding schools um but it also increasingly informs our professional journey like how we engage with some of the most senior leaders in the organizations and systems that we're working with and how we trying to create the conditions for significant change in those places so like enormous gratitude for the large amount of work you're doing both personally but also as a writer and an articulator and illuminator you know as the language we Mm -hmm. use in our world of these kinds of ideas because it's critical and it's just a it's a blind spot you know and so thank you for the work you're doing we always finish off our pod in a similar way so is there a is there kind of any kind of like anything you're carrying around in your back pocket at the moment, Richard? Like a like a quote? Is there a song you're listening to a lot? Is there a a poem you recite regularly, or that is you know is there something your kids said? Is that is there anything you're kind of carrying around with you at the moment that keeps you keeps you just sane enough to take the next step? Well, there's not, but you surprised me with this at the beginning of the uh, of the show. And I said, well, okay, what can I do? So I looked up and I'm at my desk and in front of me, I've got a big baize board, which I stick random things on. Um, and I was listening to a, a podcast about uh, AIs uh, and a man called Ben Goetzel, who talks about these things. He was trying to say, what's the difference between how can you stay human? Mm. And he just had three words. He said, joy, growth, choice. And I've written those down. I said, well, this is what keeps you human, mm. you know, and not, not an artificial intelligence. Mm. But for some reason, underneath joy, growth, choice, I have written straight white men. 
So there's something which I need to connect there. I think, you know, the people in positions of privilege do have access to joy, growth, choice. It's some one of the things that you kind of fight to, to, to defend. So once you realize what it is that, you know, everyone should have, then you can start working out, well, why, how is it that this has been kind of rationed, mm. the joy? Why have we rationed the growth? Why have we rationed the choice? Because those mm. things are actually, they don't need to be rationed. Mm. You know, there, there is an unlimited amount of joy, possible growth, possible choice. Um, and that's what I'm going to leave you with. It's written here on my board. Um, and I hadn't looked at it for a while. So, so I'm grateful to you for making me come up with something. <laughs> and I just love to thank you both, Tim. Tuesday, thanks very much for having me on. Oh, thank you so much. I just myself wrote down joy, growth, choice. That's so good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So, so great. Take care, folks. Mm-hmm.